0: Welcome, 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 one and all, big and small. You've reached the podcast known as The Three Carnies. So come on,
1: let's show you around. Scudder, huh?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I might be able to help you out with that.
2: That's about high.
1: You might try The Daily Brothers Show.
2: It probably works for them he's lousy with midgets. You better cooperate, me, or I'm gonna run you in. If you are a lawman, I guess I'm John Dillinger. Save it for Halloween.
1: Welcome, Rousties, to another night at the Three Carnies podcast. My name's Monica. I'm Tana. And I'm Jen.
2: Welcome as we get together to discuss Creed, Oklahoma, the next episode in our review for the season. So let's get to it. We are going to open to seeing Ben walk around the carnival at nighttime. Everything is covered in ash. Someone reaches out to attack him. He wakes on a cart traveling in the hot sun. Rousey's and Felix are talking about the upcoming fight. And good old Osgood, he bets on Joe Lewis. Gotta love Osgood. Lila complains about the coffee. Rufy sees Sophie's ghosty mom sitting in front of her. And then she confronts Sophie and it doesn't go well. Samson sees a tender moment between Sophie and Ben. Really nothing <laughs> escapes his gaze. What'd y'all think of our opening scene? I just think it's weird that everything
0: seems to be covered in ash and there's just a sense of foreboding going on. Is it trying to predict a death, fire or something?
2: I didn't get the ash thing when I was watching it, but hearing you say that, I had the thought that Maybe it's, you know, that whole conversation we had about burning the tarot cards, bringing the, not the underworld, but opening the door for that world. I wonder if it's all right. The carnival is now uh, tainted by fire and Apollonia and all that business.
1: When I was watching this, I thought it could tie to two different things. Appy's presence still being at the carnival and the smell of smoke, or it could have be a tie to Samson's intro for this season, talking about the atomic bomb, wiping everything out. But I wasn't sure which one of those two or
2: something else. It could be either. I guess the only reason why I didn't go with the tie into the atomic bomb is whenever we've seen that area, it's been very consistent. It's bright day. It's in the desert. It's never really touched the carnival, but I mean, it could be like Tano saying, a sense of foreboding of that this is going to touch everything.
1: Yeah, and the two wolves howling, it was very much like the orange sky when Justin had the vision of the tree. Now, I have no idea what the two wolves represent, but... I tax think a tax nice collection.
2: Do you all like how they kind of pepper in events of the time in with the carnival general plotline, how they put in the Joe Lewis fight?
1: I definitely do. It rounds it in reality a bit, which is extra nice since this is such a fantastical series. It's nice to have that reality.
2: I think it's a good tether, too, to their reality, right? So it's us being able to see them through the frame of their world a little bit more than just we kept on with the constant storyline or even the tangent lines.
0: Yeah, I like that they put in real world uh, events in here, too.
2: When we talk about the end, we should see if we can think of our favorite one. They've done that pretty throughout the series.
0: So this is actually a real fight. And it actually takes place like quite a while from the past real-time check-in that we had.
1: So some filming magic, I got it. You mean it's not exactly in the, the dates that the show is supposedly taking place? Is that what you mean? I'm just saying, the last
0: time we knew where we were in time, it was November 34. It is now September 35. So it's jumped 10 months within a couple episodes.
2: What did y'all think about the uh, moment between Sophie and Ben? As they're getting all adorable.
1: I thought it was adorable. But I think what struck me the most was Samson's face when I was watching it. He wasn't exactly angry, but there was just a sadness to it. You could see he's, oh, fuck. Knowing that it was going to lead to heartbreak.
0: Yeah, he just knows this shit won't end well.
1: What are y'all talking about? Teenage romance lasts forever. Yes, totally. (laughs) I think Sophie might be one of his favorite people at the carnival.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people are very protective of her in general that are there yeah i also
0: think they're really sweet i like them too i also noticed that he seems to have no problem with touching sophie whereas like just episodes ago he's like freaking out about ruthie trying to touch him
1: yeah i think sophie was very much a slow warm to touching him where ruthie moved pretty quickly even when they slept together, not sex, but literally slept together on his mat, they still didn't touch then. So he's had time to warm up to the slowly getting closer and closer.
0: Yeah, I agree. And she doesn't seem to have grabby hands, so that's always good.
1: (laughs) Grabby hands. Grabby hands, Ruthie. It's not clear that Sophie is looking for anything more than just closeness and friendship, where. Ruthie was 100% looking to get down and get together with Ben, which probably adds a little bit more safety to how he relates to Sophie.
0: I always wonder what's up with her grabbing his belt.
2: I don't know. Yeah, I think in general, Ben doesn't do good with women that are a little bit more aggressive or forward. I think Sophie's even pace is good for him.
1: Yeah, allows him to emotionally warm up before physically. Especially since there was so much baggage with physical touch growing up.
2: Meanwhile, Justin's project is going really well. Tommy walks in and it's a bit tense with Iris. Do either of you have any ideas of, I mean, I have a half an idea on why Justin, wants the project sped up so fast, the contractors, like, oh, it'll be six weeks. And then he's all like, no, faster.
1: I just think he finds as much power as soon as he can. Delicious. Okay. I
2: just wasn't sure if there was a to-do list in his destruction of the world. There may be, but it's not revealed to us anywhere. Next, we see Samson confronting Ben about his closeness with Sophie. And Ben takes off. Rupi looks over a snake bite as Sophie enters. And basically, Ruthie lets her know that she's been seeing dead people who don't speak. And they have a very thoughtful discussion. For both of these scenes, I felt it showed a maturity with the characters for Samson confronting something difficult. and Same thing with Ruthie. What was y'all's take?
0: Yeah, I think Samson and Ben had a point. Samson doesn't really want to see Sophie hurt again. But Ben's also right in saying that it's none of his business.
1: Yeah, they're both old enough where they can make their terrible decisions.
2: I did like how strong Ruthie came off when she's I'm not crazy and she's just being so open with Sophie about what it's been like.
1: Yeah, they were both very tender with each other. You know, the fact that Sophie came to Ruthie's trailer to apologize for storming off earlier and the fact that Ruthie shared this thing that was going on, it it was nice to see those two bond. When Sophie stormed off earlier, do you think that she didn't believe Ruthie or that part of her did and she just wanted to stay in denial? That was probably a leading question showing what I think.
2: How dare you, Monica, lead us in this direction? I don't know. I think
1: it's more denial. I
2: think she wants to leave it all behind her. And maybe for the first time before then, she was starting to feel the ground a little bit underneath her. And that just set her back a bit.
0: Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I could see the denial because she just didn't seem ready to hear about any of that.
1: So
2: she just ran away.
1: Do you guys have any theory why they don't talk? The dead people, that is.
2: I think of it as having a veil. Ruthie can see into maybe what they're going through, but that they don't necessarily see her right back.
1: Oh, that could be true. I will say, though, and this could just be inconsistency with the show. When we first saw Skeeter Lewis, Skeeter Lewis did nod hello to Ruthie when she was walking by. And Ruthie said hello to him.
2: That's a good catch.
0: I don't know. I just don't think
1: they're able to speak to the living. They need body vocal cords.
2: Poor Patrick Swayze and O'Bee Goldberg.
1: Mm, Yes.
2: And anybody under the age of 25 is probably not going to (laughs) ever. Then Tommy tells Justin he has disturbing news about Iris. I mean, we all knew it was going there.
1: What did you guys think of Justin's reaction when he was told the news about her burning her own clothes and her guilt? I kind of thought it was a bit restrained, to be honest. Or surprisingly restrained. I thought the same thing. I thought he was a little bit cold with the news. And no one seemed to question his coldness. Justin obviously knew that this was going to come to him at some point in time, but I just would think he'd fake a little bit more emotion. And the fact that no one was really shocked at his lack of emotion just seemed interesting to me. Yeah. This isn't just his right-hand person, this is his sister.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Their relationship has been strained for a while, so it's confusing. But he's been on this one path and pretty much solo for a little while. And so I wouldn't go as far as to say I think he feels like, oh, no, he shouldn't do this. I think it's just a moment that gives him pause.
0: Does anyone else find it weird that there's children playing in his front yard?
2: (laughs) Yes, yes. Next, we see Ben visiting a very nice house where he meets a Mr. Getty's. And this is the person who made Scudder's death mask. He lets them know that Scudder is alive. I don't know about y'all, but I got instant creepy vibes from this guy.
0: No, you should have creepy vibes from this guy.
2: He says he makes death masks for kids and he puts like cinnamon hot water. Did either of you guys think this scene was just a tad bit redundant? Do you think that we needed to have confirmation that he was alive
0: for this? I think it's pretty obvious that Scudder is still alive because we didn't see him die in a vision. We didn't see a dead body anywhere. This guy is obviously alive and just hiding out somewhere.
1: Yeah, I think it was nice for us to see Ben being told that he was alive. Because the last episode, Ben was told he's dead and got all emotional about that and even though management was like oh he's still alive doesn't mean ben believed management do i think it could have been a shorter scene yes definitely
2: yeah i just got like tales of the crypt vibe basically i mean it's creepy but do i need it no this is dead fetus in a jar category for me
0: I think it's also really weird that this guy's house is the only green patch in miles of dirt.
2: Yeah. The male version of the witch in Hansel and Gretel.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great comparison. It was all a bit desperate. Oh, I don't have many visitors. Oh, Always time for tea and good discussion. Considering what he's been through, he needs a little
2: bit of safety training. Because he's getting himself into some predicaments here. Predicaments.
1: Yeah, he needs to do some self-defense training. Stranger danger training.
2: And he needs a whistle. (laughs) I joke, but he's made progress. He asks questions now. So that's cool. Next, we see Sophie eyeing the cards. And the episode cuts to kids getting on the Ferris wheel. Libby has a very candid conversation with Jonesy. And then she gets to speak up. For Jonesy after Sophie gives him not an order, but does a Sophie thing. And Jonesy likes this. And then we get to see Justin's henchman at the carnival.
0: There's like tons and tons of shots of the Ferris wheel in this episode.
2: I'm wondering if they're trying to hint at something. Yeah, that's an excellent point. There was lots of Ferris wheel in this one. Yeah but they were beautiful shots of the Ferris wheel. Mm, yes. The very
1: unsafe, unregulated Ferris <laughs> wheel. Yes. The part where the dad pays for his kids to ride for half an hour. I loved that for a couple of reasons. A, I thought it was kind of a nice, humorous thing, but I think it was also a really good way of showing that Libby's ideal and Jonesy's ideal of a perfect parent that is not realistic. Everybody's got their flaws and things aren't the way they seem. It was an interaction that showed so much behind it. I agree. I think it kind of highlighted their perceptions of love and how
2: they really didn't feel loved. And while maybe Jonesy can recognize that about Libby, I don't know that he can recognize that about himself necessarily. I agree. They're also really
0: sweet with each other.
2: I know, and it made me mad.
1: What were your thoughts on how Libby was talking to Sophie? I think it's a bit of misplaced anger that while she was being defensive
2: of Jonesy, she was adding a bit of fire to it because she was angry and hurt from the rejection from last season.
0: I think it makes sense to me that Sophie still has like somewhat of a relationship with Jones because they've had a, Stronger relationship for a longer period of time so they could rekindle ish. Whereas, but she was friends with Libby, she was only like really friends with her for a really short amount of time. Now that she's broken that relationship, there it's easier just to keep that one broken.
1: I think my interpretation of Libby in that moment I thought Libby was especially mean to Sophie, but I think an element was also. Libby just being an immature teenager showing off in front of a boy she likes while also putting down someone she feels jealous of because she knows Sophie was Jonesy's previous infatuation. Sometimes teenagers are just jerks, you know, and it's not like Libby had healthy behaviors modeled. I just think it's easier for both Jonesy and Libby to be passive-aggressive jerks in that moment instead of talking like adults.
0: I agree. I also think it's funny that Libby mentions that Jones is not a babysitter while he is minding that guy's children.
2: Oh, yeah. She's so
0: wonderfully bratty,
2: though. The episode goes back to Justin, who breaks the news to Iris, and she basically calls him out on his play with words and kind of stands up to him, kind of doesn't. I don't know. The scene hit me in a few different ways. What would y'all think? Is this the the
0: ask me scene? Yes. Yeah, my two notes are so good at all caps and that Justin and Iris are creepy sexual.
1: I agree with both of those points. So why do you think she wants him to ask her? I think she wants him to ask her because it's a way that she can have some sort of power in this exchange. Where she can be the dom, even though she doesn't have much power to what is going to happen to her in the future. But at the least, she can force him to ask and make him stand up and take accountability for what he wants her to do. Then why do you think he can't? I think he eventually does, because we see her confessing. I just don't think we saw that part of the scene. I think it also hurts him because he does love Iris and has feelings for her and doesn't want to take accountability for asking her to go down for him. You know, he just wants her to magically do it like she's done everything else. Because that's him consciously putting effort to hurt her, to throw her under the bus. It's his fault she gets under the bus versus her laying there herself. Do you guys have thoughts on that? Other than to say it's maybe the one time that we've
2: seen him conflicted ever since he embraced this path of his. Maybe that is he cares. Or maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's that she's been this kind of tether to everything. I almost wonder if he just kind of wanted to hurt her because he was angry and now it's just, oh, wow. I would say go as far as he feels bad for his actions, but just this moment's here and he's just coming to terms with it.
1: I thought that scene on the porch was just shot so beautifully, you know, with the, the bright background and the blue sky and Justin in the dark clothes hunching over. Iris getting close to him and grabbing his arms and whispering in his ear asked me, like, the visuals were beautiful. And I think Clancy's Brown's size just so benefited that scene because... His shoulders took up so much of the frame, but yet he was still crumpled over. And Iris is coming up and her body stance was strong and settled and just asked me. She wasn't cowering down at all. And it did feel super sexual, like foreplay going on. I love the tension there. It's interesting you bring up the way it was shot because the two characters, really, their presence took up not the physical
2: space as much as it felt intimate even though the backdrop and the lighting and everything.
0: I love this scene. It is executed so well and acted so beautifully and I wish these two were in more things together. Serious.
1: They'd be great with an Audrey Hepburn Spencer Tracy role where they're antagonists and then end up together.
2: Next we go back to Ben. And he is with Mr. Getty's discussing him as Carter. He presses him to find the records for Scudder's location and looks like he's being drugged. Again, I put it in for continuity, but I could do without these Mr. Getty scenes. The episode flips over seeing Felix being a bit pushy. He uh, sees Rita Sue after a client, the client who was such a good dad before. Felix and Rita Sue get a bit cute and then she presses him about how much money he owes. Basically, she covers him. The show moves on to Varlin talking with Jonesy about a famous Ferris wheel accident, and Varlin tries to question Jonesy, who won't say nothing.
0: Yeah, I just think it's really obvious this fight is just not going to go down well for Felix, and also it seems that all the other Rousties are voting for the other person.
1: Yeah, with Felix's anxiousness setting up the radio, you can just tell immediately he took all of Rita Sue's money and put it on this.
2: It makes me think we thought he was maybe looking at her hatbacks for money. Maybe he was just looking to count it and see how much she had. Honestly, their scenes, I love Felix and Rita Sue together with their scenes because it goes instantly from being super cute to she's trying to get a little bit of information from him. And then that look that she gives him as she's taking their entire savings, like, it's heartbreaking.
1: Yeah. She knows exactly when to get the truth out of him. Wait till he's all hot and bothered and can't resist or think straight for a lie.
2: Yeah, and I guess part of it is that we see Rita Sue being so strong most of the time that she looks so fragile and vulnerable as she is essentially just giving up everything for him.
1: Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention about the fight bet scene is more proof that Osgood is the best rousty out there. He bet on Joe Lewis, no matter whether he was a white guy or a black guy.
0: Yeah, I love that Osgood just seemed to want just to have fun with the fight and he wasn't really out to make millions or anything.
2: That's who Libby should be talking to is Osgood. He is a good man. Yep.
0: Do you think Jones even knows about Scudder?
1: I don't think so. He hasn't been privy to any of the conversations with Samson and management or Ben. I think Jonesy just operates
2: on this, like, you ate my people. I ain't telling you Squanto.
0: I think that's true. I also, I can't really remember reading if he was at the carnival at the same time as Scudder. I don't think so, though.
1: Yeah, I don't think so either. It seems like very few people were actually at the carnival when Scudder was there. Only the super old timers, because he was there before management was there. Barlin is so good at being an intimidating creeper. Just the long diatribe about safety and the Ferris wheel and how slowly he built up to being a more and more violent picture. I love how this character works for a big bad guy.
0: Oh, yeah, same. I was thinking the same thing. And also, apparently, this is how... He killed his sister. The little girl he was talking about is actually his sister. And then he caused the Ferris wheel to crash.
1: I was kind of wondering that. I was, is that his sister he's talking about? Yeah. This
2: episode then takes us to Ben, who wakes up in a very mysterious place. Not like his workshop at all. He has a conversation with Mr. Gettys. And as he's putting on this mysterious goop, which does have beeswax, he then wakes up as if it's all from a dream. He frantically searches for the workshop and Mr. Getty's calm, cool, collected, says, oh, he has an address for Scudder. Ben leaves suspiciously as Mr. Getty's turns on Brother Justin. That whole scene was pure horror show. Yeah,
0: I definitely thought this was the creepiest scene when I first watched this show.
1: The creepiest scene out of all of Carnival so far?
0: Yeah, this is the thing that really creeped me out.
1: Wow. Now
0: I find his line delivery hilarious. Okay, I have a
1: few questions. What do you guys think was all those masks he had around? Do you think those are previous victims or masks he's done throughout his career that no one claimed? Yeah, what do y'all think about the masks? Can it be both? Can he have some spare parts and also items indicative of child murder?
2: Like, I don't get why he makes the masks. It's creepy. It's very creepy. But, like, I don't get him (laughs) as a character. (laughs) I was
0: going to say uh, those masks are indeed from his victims because he is
1: a child murderer. A
2: retired child murderer.
1: What do you think he's a child murderer? I know they led to that saying he only does it for, chi- you know, death masks for children. Tell me your secret knowledge.
0: OK, there wasn't too many secret knowledges on Evander Gettys, just that he murdered a bunch of children. But they keep showing him painting the, the doll at the end, and they had the mobile of babies, booties. So I'm thinking he's just had some weird fascination with children that probably started with pedophilia and then ended up murdering children.
1: Do you think that's why Getty's wears that baby face mask over his own face? And he's trying to get closer to the children?
0: Yeah, I, I think so.
1: Next, we see
2: Joe Louis winning the fight, and Felix is devastated. Racism runs a bit rampant. Samson has a nice chat with a condescending Varlin, who points him out to another operation. Samson correctly guesses Varlin isn't who he says he is. Then we see Rita being mad at Felix for betting. He tries to convince her that he bet on Louis, but we know. Ben meets up with Varlin, who has a chat and drives away. Sophie is now ready to read the cards. And as she reads, Ben sees Scudder. She sees them kissing before the apocalypse. He backs away at the third card. And then Sophie sees Apollonia, who says, It was always Sophie who could read the cards.
0: Does anyone else find it weird that they just suddenly made Felix racist in this episode? It's
2: just weird in general, because they made him and then they had the other Rousey that was a bit and i mean we seem like classism but we haven't seen a whole lot of overt racism i mean i could be not thinking of any right now but not like this at least
1: to be honest it don't bother me because i think it probably should have came up earlier racism in the show especially if this is during the depression time period because this is where segregation was running like really, really rampant. So it would be incredibly surprising to me if there wasn't any racism with this group of people. And so if it's a fight between a white person and a black person, for sure racism is going to come up. Why do you guys think Felix just keeps lying? It's
2: easier?
0: He has an addiction.
1: Addiction,
2: they'll give every excuse, any excuse.
1: And then why do you guys think Rita Sue puts up with it? Oof,
2: That's an episode. She puts up with it because
0: she loves him. She wants to see the best in him. She wants him to come through this, so she hopes he gets through this somehow.
2: But she knows he's lying. She knows. I also think it's more than just she's vested. They've had a lifetime together. And so this isn't new behavior. And it's just something that she's came to accept over time, those little things that change. And you're right, Tanya, like it is this unconditional love in a sense, but it's also this bond and attachment that they have to one another that she's very, that's her person.
1: Yeah, I think it's, if I was to guess, I think it's, and this may also be exactly what you guys are saying. I think it's less that she loves him and wants what's best for him and wants him to do good because I think she knows he's not going to do what is best for him. I think she's seen this so many times. She knows exactly what's going to happen. But I think I think it's also codependence. I think they are just so tied to each other.
2: Well, yeah, she says it when he's about to leave. She goes, you don't even know how to leave.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the same for her too.
2: Yeah, I would imagine this is not the first time.
1: Yeah, totally. When that random person came by and Felix was like, oh, this is my old buddy. She knew exactly who it was. Yeah. So for this,
2: let's just call it relapse, because I don't think he was, you know, seriously gambling in like, the say, first half of the season, one. But I do think that the death of Dorme maybe have triggered like this old compulsion to seek refuge in addiction. Yeah, I can see that. I have to say my favorite bit of this
1: was Samson and Barlin squaring off because Samson is so sharp. I love him. I love that scene. Barlin's so good at starting slow, then ramping up. And one of my favorite lines is when Samson's, I I can't remember exactly what his is, but If you're Johnny Law, then it's Halloween and how Samson is not intimidated by him at all.
2: There's a reason why he runs the carnival.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a great line. And in all his, Varlin's interactions with various people, Samson was the only one that really got him to lose his cool. The more we see
2: of Samson, the more awesome he becomes.
1: When Varlin saw Ben walking in. Do you think he had any idea who Ben was? I don't just because he's been so Scudder focused, but that's
2: just me.
0: I think he suspected that Ben was the kid, but then he also just wanted to check out Samson's suggestion just to cross that off the list.
1: Yeah, I think in the start of the conversation with Ben, he is not really suspecting Ben of anything or being anyone. But towards the end, when Ben keeps going in, and he yells, hey, I told you it was closed. I think that's his way of letting Ben know. I know something's up with you.
2: Should the Daily brothers be worried? I mean, only if they won't let him make a good like, telegram call or something from their outfit. All right. All right. He seems like he's fine with killing, but he doesn't go out of his way to murder. Like he's kill casual, basically.
0: Well, I don't know. He blew up the Templar Lodge
1: casual and slit the guards throat when he didn't need to (laughs) all right fine he's evil i do like that samson throws the daily brothers under the bus all right i'm gonna throw him towards my competition even though it is friendly competition
0: yeah he just wanted to give him the runaround and hopefully they could escape him before meeting up with him again
2: Or maybe at least be more prepared for next time, too. Yeah. So were either of you guys happy to see her back with the cards and then Apollonia and everything?
0: Well, I always thought it was weird that she said she couldn't do it without her mom. Because even with or without her mom, she would at least know what the cards basically meant. So it's not like she doesn't really know how to read them at all. Know that ghost mom is right behind her telling her, like, no, you're the one that's been having the visions and stuff. Uh, that kind of makes sense. Her mom is super creepy there.
1: Yeah. I love how even after life, Apollonia has her hands in that position, that rigor mortis position. Yeah, I didn't think they could make her more creepy if they had animated her and then they did,
2: so... Bravo to the costume department and the acting.
1: I do think both Ben and Sophie saw each other kissing in the apocalypse. They had the same vision.
0: I think so, too. They just don't want to admit it right now.
1: Yeah, what an awkward conversation. Would you see? Oh, so I saw, before a big explosion, totally French kissing on a desert playa. How about you?
2: Mm, yeah, they both died of it secretive after that.
0: I'm wondering if that's like perhaps a vision of the future or if that's two images superimposed on one on one another because they both they're both dressed up really nice.
1: I think it's future.
0: Yeah, I'm leaning towards future too.
1: The
2: episode shows us Iris giving testimony at how she burned the children. The end of which Justin forgives her. That was a weird scene. Maybe almost anticlimactic or something, as opposed to the one we had earlier. Do you think it's weird that she
0: pretty much just stared at Justin the whole time?
2: Weird, yes. Unexpected, no.
0: And then I just love the look of disgust on Tommy's face. He just can't believe what he's hearing. And he's lost all respect for this woman.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that she said she had to stay to watch the fire and watch it burn, but she had a hard time hearing the kids scream. She knows what she's doing. She doesn't want to hear the hurt, but she wants to make sure it gets accomplished. It comes down to what she said earlier, faith in action, you know? Yeah, and I think this is proof that it's a ends justify as the means. Sucks. These kids had to die, but it was worth it. I also really love that line,
0: what was it? I fell upon a shadow, it preyed upon me, it needed to be done. So great, so creepy, oh my god.
1: I know, and then she's looking at Justin dead in the eyes when she's saying that.
2: They just have the craziest dynamic. I mean, it's good that it's out there now. She's owning it, so that's it, whatever happens, next happens. what do you all think is going to happen? I'm not going to ask you guys. You guys know. Never mind. <laughs> what will probably happen is she'll go to jail and they'll burn a stake like 1600 style. But what I would think to happen is that she finds a way to, I don't know, make Tommy Dolan take the charge. I, I hope that she can turn it around. <laughs> but realistically, I expect her to be crucified in all those ways. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, i <I'm> terrible. Because <laughs> you're just, I, I can't see you thinking, but I can hear it. Samson and Ben now have a chat uh, about where Scudder is, and Samson totally calls out Barlin. Next, we see the carnival packing up, and the episode cutting to Justin getting a package of Ben's mask. He can now see through Ben's eyes. Ben sees Justin through the mirror, drops the mirror, and then Justin drops the mask. Very freaky.
1: I did not interpret it that Ben saw Justin through the mirror. I interpreted that he was just looking at himself, looking into the mirror.
2: Oh. Okay.
0: Obviously, okay. So Justin puts on the mask, and now through the mask, he could see through Ben's eyes. So when Ben went over to pick up the mirror to pack it onto the truck, Ben looked in the mirror and then Ben had a recognition that someone else is looking at him through his eyes in the mirror. Does
2: that make sense? He always feels like somebody's watching him. Yes. Yes, it does. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I like how they did that scene. That was really cool.
1: Yeah. Especially oh. how they started out with just the carnies packing up. And then later seeing the carney's packing up through Ben's eyes, through Justin's eyes.
2: <laughs> what do you think was up with the whole leading mask thing?
0: I think Evander Geddes heard a whisper transmission and then the whisper transmission told him to send the mask to Justin. So that's why Justin now has the mask.
1: But you were talking about the blood coming out of the mask, right, Jen? Yeah, yeah. That was a cool visual, but it did make me roll my eyes because I think it was purely for visual dramatics. Weird for weirdness.
0: Yeah, and if anything, I think it just indicates that the mask is officially broken. Now there's no power or anything or any strings attached to it.
1: Did you have an interpretation of the blood coming out of the mask? Just in as much as that, like, the mask was part of Ben. And that
2: they took some of his life essence, in a sense, to create it. And by destroying it, it was whatever a part of him was gone, basically. But I mean, <laughs> it was weird for weird sake. I'm with you on that one.
0: I also noticed that Justin now had a different housekeeper than the one he had at the end of the last episode. So do you guys think the girl from last episode may have had the same fate as Celeste? One hundred percent,
2: yep. I mean, as Tommy said, there's so many people he could barely get in the house. He's got a selection,
0: yeah. and also notice this one was is not as young as the past, too. So maybe this one is just finally, okay. We just really need a housekeeper now. Someone needs to clean this place. <laughs>
2: <laughs> We're actually going to get qualifications now for real Zs. How do you guys feel about all the
0: major towns that they seem to be going to are all biblically named? Like this one is Damascus, and previously they've been to
2: Babylon. It's cool. I don't know that I would notice otherwise, but it's a nice touch.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. Add adds a nice atmosphere. But
0: yeah, I think on the most part, it just notes that these towns are the important ones in the story.
1: So who were
2: y'all's favorite actors this episode?
0: Well, I'm going to go with Barlin. I really love his chaotic energy. I think the actor does such a good job at being both menacing and humorous at the same time. And I also really like uh, Evander Gettys in this episode. I think the actor does really well with him,
1: too. Iris. Even though her hand was being forced in both of the scenes when she's telling Tommy or when she's talking to Justin, she just had some hardcore Dom vibes going on with the, ask me, Justin, ask me. And still forcing Justin's hand and trying to get his goat. And it worked because he gets all riled up and is, that's enough. She's so great. Uh, Yeah. Jen, you? Because
2: I really loved Samson in this episode. I thought he was just so strong and caring and compassionate. The softer side of Samson, if you want to call it that. He cares about everybody in his carnival so much, even though he's slick and you really can't one-up him. I love that, but then I also really loved Rita Stew and just how she... Went from trying to be supportive to broken down and and back again, and both of those were just great performances. This episode. Do you guys like this episode? I do. I do. I could use without the whole like psychotic Colonel Sanders murderer child person, but the rest of it I like.
1: Yeah, I liked it too. I thought there was a lot of great dialogue and interaction and. It wasn't the most exciting as far as moving the plot, but I think it was a really solid episode with a lot of interesting things going on in the undertones. Did you?
0: Yeah, I like this one. I rewatched this one a bunch. I also really like the dialogue here. Everyone's got really great lines. I think that whole scene in the workshop is both really creepy and funny. This line delivery is just so humorous now. Oh, my God. Okay.
2: That's been us talking about Creed Oklahoma. We hope you
1: enjoyed it. We've enjoyed making it. As always, I'm Jen. I'm Tana. And I'm Monica. Take a ride with us next week, where we'll be driving down season two, episode five, The Road to Damascus. Let us know your thoughts by leaving us a review or rating on your podcast app of choice. Or send us an email to the 3 carnies Podcast at gmail.com.
2: Bye, everyone.